If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. In 1960, something was discovered beneath an atoll, a crystal, a structure of some sort, engraved with runes. It was like a wall of etchings. The U.S. military took custody of it, and Ward Prime was created. In this ward, this huge crystal, its fragments, and its mysterious runes would be studied, eventually experimented with. On September 30th of 1960, a doctor named Ulrich Harsgaard and a team of researchers descended into the ward to begin their studies. From the start, Harsgaard is so certain that the crystal and its strange engravings originated from Earth, though his commander believes that they're alien. But what is certain is this crystal and its hieroglyphic runes are very old indeed, and a marvel of linguistics possibly the provenience of all languages, therefore deciphering it will just take time. But who created these runes? Who made the crystal? It takes only a month for Harsgard to learn the name Clawbone. Harsgard calls Clawbone a missionary of sorts from his own country, and the runes are his message. Within the etches, Clawbone claims to be from a land free from sickness or death, a land of perfection, and while Harsgard tries to teach his comrades how to decipher these runes, they just cannot do so. They don't see the language the way he does, at first believing Harsgard to perhaps be off his rocker, a little delusional. But Harsgard proves his genius, using the runes to decipher and open a sealed door, and from here on, Harsgard is the overseer of the runes, a default leader of what's to come over the next decade. By June of 1961, Harsgard has begun to make profound discoveries. He once believed the crystals were a power source, but in fact, it is a viewing or transportation device, something Clawbone calls a world stone in his rune writings. Not only that, but Clawbone is in fact not of an ancient human civilization, but a being from an entirely different world, something not even humanoid in all likelihood. Within these runes are held secrets about many, many worlds, and how Clawbone's people have evolved beyond pain and suffering that they only wish to share this knowledge with other worlds, and Clawbone left instructions. Sure, they have to be deciphered to understand, but there's plenty of time to accomplish this. Connections created mind to mind can link worlds to this place in a manner of speaking. From Earth, we can virtually see these places. Under direction of Dr. Harsgaard, the only one who can read the runes, the dreamer experiments began. But the consciousness of their first dreamer, codenamed Katerin, gets in the way of making connections between worlds. So, drugging begins to sedate the dreamers and increase lucidity in a dream state. Within two months, though, reports and records are made indicating that all is not going well. There's extreme melancholy and depression amongst staff in the now-designated Ward 1 housing Katerin. One of the research leads, a man named Skleiermacher, reports falling asleep while monitoring Katerin and experiencing vivid dreams of conflagration, monstrous cryptids, and the wailing of damned souls. Controlled drugs are stolen from the drug lockers, staff and faculty are requesting antidepressants, and people within the wards 
Look to the outside world, seeing the conflicts and wars taking place just for it to feed into their melancholy. The drug locker is more tightly monitored, requests for antidepressants are denied by Harsgard, and the restless dreamers of wards one through three are not more deeply sedated. Tighten their restraints. That's all that's needed. For a year, it carries on like this. In February of 1962, Harsgard made detailed notes about this missionary clawbone and his unparalleled understanding of the runes and the potential for mankind because of it. The more he studies them, the more he unlocks, as though seeing deeper into layers of gospel hidden within the crystal. It's not that they change in any way, of course not. His mind is what changes. He can read more into what he never perceived existing before within the hieroglyphs. Though, still, the dreamers have not made connections to other worlds. Harsgard begins to wonder at the possibility of making actual contact with Clawbone himself. According to the runes, Clawbone's people cannot cross into realms which are quarantined by guardians or protected by ancient code. So, Clawbone's civilization cannot enter Earth because of some quarantine or denial of entrance. The crystal must have been their solution to that, their way of reaching out because a personal visit was impossible. In September of 1962, tragedy struck. Gaston, the dreamer of Ward 2 had for some time been squirming in his chair, acting in a way that made his observers uncomfortable even though he was sedated. Skleiermacher believes his mind was actively rejecting a connection to the world stone, but Harsgard refuses to allow deeper sedation. So, their work continues on until Gaston gets up. They weren't sure after the fact if Gaston was aware of what he was doing, if he was still in a dreamer's state, they weren't sure what Gaston saw in the space between worlds as he lingered beyond Earth, or if he saw another world, perhaps the future of mankind. But Gaston arose, destroyed equipment, overpowered guards and researchers, and shot himself through the eye. Full death count was not given, but it was a disastrous event referred to as mass murder-suicide. Katerin, the dreamer of Ward 1, continued to induce depression upon staff. The topside world became bleaker due to conflict and war, and now Ward 2 was completely locked up. A pathologist named N.G. Sato examines Gaston's body and is amazed at the fibrous growths that were within his brain tissue, pondering if this is to be the fate of all the dreamers. By December of that year, Ward 3 is a burned-out husk, and Ward 1 is quarantined with dead bodies inside. Within Ward 1, either Clawbone or someone of his race made contact with Katerin. No one's mind could handle this event. The otherworldly being was trying to use Katerin to communicate with the scientists and researchers of Ward 1. And though we don't know explicitly what happened, the extreme nihilism that swept the ward ended with everyone inside dead. And the area placed under contagion lockdown just in case it was contagious. Though, later, bodies were seen being carted out of Ward 1 by curious employees, though the intentions and fates of these corpses was not information the staff of Ward Prime was made privy to. To them, 
They were soldiers whose names and ranks did not exist. Then in Ward 3, a mass fire centered around an unnamed dreamer. Though upon review of the footage, Harsgard swears that within the flame, in the very last frame of the video footage, he can see Clawbone just for that one frame, but he knows what it is. So Clawbone has once again tried to touch a mind he was not meant to touch, and another tragedy ensued. It's almost a certainty that Clawbone also caused the mass murder and suicide of Ward 2 as well. What's more, the doctor, called Skleiermacher, gasps at the review, leading Harsgard to believe that he too saw Clawbone in the flame. No one else reacts to the footage. Within two months, in February of 1963, well, Skleiermacher was forced into quarantine. It seems he's begun losing his mind. Other off-site wards have been created. We know that the count goes to at least 17 in total, though we only know the names of a few dreamers for this specific time period. Within Ward 13, a massive stone world is housed and studied. We know of Subject 2409, who became the first to connect to another world in 1964. Harsgard leaves Ward Prime to move to this unnamed ward to study this event and this dreamer. His obsession with contacting Clawbone has deepened over the years. In his mind, this connection with this alien species is the answer to mankind's limitations. No more disease, death, war, and he could be the one who leads humanity to this future. After all, it is he who can read the runes. It is he who saw Clawbone in the flames of Ward 3 and kept his sanity. The runes are speaking to his mind now. Clawbone is whispering into his dreams. For two years, there are some in the remaining wards who seem to doubt the dreamer experiments, but between March and early April of 1966, the dreamer codenamed Gabriel, or Subject 2419, makes a connection to another world's guardian, a place with inhabitants they call Fuzzies. This guardian that Gabriel connects to is like the planet's god or soul, and the Fuzzies worship it as though it were a god. Though it takes very little time for the Fuzzies to become distrustful of the guardian after Gabriel connects to it. Some even go so far as to throw rocks or weapons at it. On April 3rd, 1966, the Fuzzies killed their guardian. This caused Gabriel to go into cardiac arrest back on Earth, resulting in the dreamer's death. Now we have the first instance of a guardian dying under observation. So, what happens to a world when its guardian dies? Three days later, Subject 2409, under observation of Dr. Harsgard, begins to broadcast a light show that all can observe on Earth, when previously all that was observed in their connection was darkness. Then, the low moaning song of a creature is broadcast, and this is undeniable proof that Subject 2409 has made a connection, removing all doubt within the wards of the genuine potential of the dreamer experiments. They're not hallucinations, they're not wild dreams, it is proof that a connection to another world has been made. It is hard data.
It takes almost one year for a new dreamer codenamed Kesa, or Subject 2419-1, to reconnect to the world that Gabriel died while connected to, the world of the Fuzzies. An expedition was actually being planned to take place here. Through experimenting with the world stone and the fragments of it at each ward, it was believed they could unlock an actual transport between worlds. An Einstein-Rosen bridge, a wormhole, as theorized by Dr. Leto Apostolakis. Dr. Leto worked tirelessly on his theory that harmonic frequencies could unlock the travel potential of the crystals. But after connecting to the world with Kesa, what they found there was something very, very different from before. The guardian Kesa connected to had the memories of Gabriel's guardian, but they were not the same. It was belligerent towards the fuzzies, or what few there were remaining. A new species had moved in. The Root. The Root hunted the fuzzies, massacred them, for game. Their bark-like environment had overtaken the planet. They were cruel and barbaric. Of course, the expedition was canceled, but Kesa's connection to this world was retained. Six months later, August of 1967, another dreamer, a 16-year-old girl named Clementine, or Subject 2923, began to show extreme agitation from her slumber. Clementine is naturally gifted as a dreamer, a trait that will occasionally appear within humans. When Clementine connected to her guardian, her abilities deepened in her slumber. The guardian became a companion of sorts with time. In fact, this guardian actually displays emotion, something that Clementine reflects on Earth. But in August of 1967, her slumbering agitation grew to such a height that her Earth body thrashed about, breaking her restraints, taking three grown men to gain control over her. This agitation is not something new, is it? It indicates that something draws near, an influence is presenting. However, in January of 1968, Clementine vanishes from Earth. She is taken from her dreamer prison in the ward to the planet of her guardian, away from the influence of Clawbone and his ilk. Though, on Earth, this isn't known. The girl just vanishes to them. But like the previous wards, when reviewing the footage of her disappearance in just the last second of the video, is Clawbone. On January 20th, very shortly after this disappearance, Harsgard brought a new dreamer online, one connected to Clawbone. In Kronos Before the Ashes, a dreamer connected to Clawbone is found, named Subject 3323, the two eventually becoming mutually sustaining. Now, we diverge from Earth in the year 1968 and look to another world for a moment so that we might understand what is to come. Let's speak of the world called Rom, beginning a millennia ago. This planet of warring tribe nations, people called the Basha, found peace long ago through the efforts of a priesthood called the Nui, led by the one called Eslan, which acted as a mouthpiece to this world's guardian. Through the guidance and mission of the Nui on behalf of the Guardian, eventually the conflicts were settled and a time of technological advancement came to Rom. 
through a construct called the Black Sun Gate. The Basha harvested Kel Hur, a resource from a dying star. The Black Sun Gate brought to Rom something otherworldly, which, through ingenuity and wit, was incorporated into their infrastructure and eventually even their armor and weapons. The Nui called Eslan used this Kelher to extend his life, eventually becoming the undying king of Rom. This advancement continued on for hundreds of years until the root arrived through the Black Sun Gate they invaded. And a great fight for survival began. The Basha nations united against the root, who they called the Guari. And because of their advanced weaponry, army, and constructs, the nations of Rom were able to fight the root for 50 long years. But the root are relentless. They are an innumerable hive mind, intent on domination and destruction, and after five decades of war, Rom began to succumb. Eslan, the undying king, made the decision to destroy the surface, something we would know as nuking. Few survived. The surface was widely irradiated, and once great cities were destroyed. But in the end, it worked. The root left Rom, and there were survivors. Eslan, the undying king, sealed himself and the dying guardian of Rom away in a great citadel guarded by the Veer constructs imbued with Kelhur. Outside the citadel, the survivors of Rom fight one another as factions divided and rebelled against the sealed away Aslan. One day, when life returns to Rom, the root will come again. Aslan knows this. Clawbone is of the root. The Root have been influencing Dr. Eric Harsgaard for many years. The Root have been driving the dreamers and researchers of the wards to madness and violence for years. But Harsgaard never made the connection, or it was a price worth paying to him. He saw deliverance for mankind, a new step in human evolution, the answers to the meaning of life, a new potential for our collective way forward that didn't involve war and disease and suffering. He lost himself to the madness and never stopped to question if this path was the right one. Experiment after experiment, dreamer after dreamer, tragedy after tragedy, he just kept pushing forward and no one stood up to the man and put a name to the madness taking place. Because Harsgard had the power, he had the rank, he had the connections, so it was allowed. He was not defied. And therefore, I offer that Harsgard is far from the only one to blame for what took place in 1968. June 20th of 1968, Kesa, subject 2419-1, the replacement for the dead dreamer Gabriel, who resided within a root guardian in the world of the fuzzies, began to reject sedation. The computer would not carry out faculty commands. Through Kesa, through Subject 3323, through Hasgard's obedience to Clawbone's instructions, the Root found Earth. Earth, which should have been impossible for Root to find and invade, entered our world through Ward 13, through a portal opened by Kesa. Ward 16 and 17 fell, implying that the Root invaded here as well through a different gate, a different dreamer. The Root killed every single dreamer in the ward, save Kesa. 
Ward 13 faculty locked themselves in Case's room, hiding from the root, though it didn't take long for the hiding researchers to discover what was going on and how to cut off more root from entering Ward 13. They had to kill Kesa. The computer overrides prevented them from doing this. It wouldn't let them kill this dreamer. The root caught on to where they were and what the hiding researchers were trying to do while Kesa was slumbering and began to beat down the door. The survivors locked in Kesa's room eventually were able to kill her, cutting off the root. They attempted one last ditch effort to make a run for safety, but they did not succeed. The lower sections of Ward 13 were sealed closed. The next day, all levels located under the World Stone housed in Ward Prime were sealed. No evacuation order, only survivors. An incursion was taking place that must be contained. Attempts to destroy the crystals of the World Stone began using aggressive harmonics spearheaded by Dr. Leto Apostolakis. For some time prior to the invasion, Dr. Leto had been working to unlock the travel potential of the crystals. Now, the goal is to destroy the Einstein-Rosen bridges they create. Ward Prime is considered fully compromised and will be the test site for this immediately, with the goal being to destroy the World Stone here. Three days later, all remaining faculty above the World Stone level are given immediate evacuation orders, though many records through logs indicate that this is ridiculous. Why do they need to evacuate? What emergency military measures would require them to evacuate? Well, the following day, the Ward Prime World Stone was destroyed by Dr. Leto, causing structural damage to the ward and leaving in its wake a traversable Lorenzian wormhole. In Research Station Alpha, Dr. Leto and those under him had for some time been studying the effects of crystals on time and space, how they displace matter from one point in space-time to another. As wards began to go dark, Research Station Alpha remained. They tried to create a weapon against the route, ignoring evacuation orders, racing against the clock as the outside world fell into chaos. But ultimately they failed. They lasted until September of 1968. Dr. Leto discovered how to use the crystal technology to create a replicator, using that, in a sense, as a teleporter while destroying the original copy of a subject. They had thought to use this as a weapon against the root, but they did not succeed. If he and his surviving team were able to use it to replicate themselves out of Research Station Alpha, it's unknown. What's also unknown is if Dr. Leto was aware that by this time, the world had essentially fallen to the root invasion. Now, someone we've not yet spoken of is a man named Andrew Ford. Ford is an extremely important character to the foundation of this tale after the fall of Earth to the root. Captain Ford was part of the Dreamer experiments during the 1960s, though he wasn't a prominent figure. In 1968, when the invasion began, he and a group of seven survivors were able to make it in a section of Ward 16. In December of that year, they were able to use the crystals 
to open a path to Ward 13, and they sealed the way behind them. Arriving in Ward 13, they were shocked to find that it too was destroyed and littered with corpses, though there were no root here. They didn't know why, but we do. Case's gateway to this ward was destroyed, and the root left after this happened. Now called Commander Andrew Ford, he led this group to take back over Ward 13, which still had a sealed world stone within. One of the survivors is a woman named Evelyn. Evelyn is another important figure in this tale. Evelyn was naturally inclined to be a dreamer, much like Clementine was, though unlike Clementine, Evelyn was never hooked up to a dreamer's harness or put into one of their helmets. Evelyn was just a normal adult woman. But not even six months after they arrive in Ward 13, Evelyn begins to have dreams of the Root, experiencing life through the eyes of the Root, understanding their thoughts and wants. It's a terrifying thing that happens. She carries this burden for several weeks until she has a dream, a premonition, really, of a Root ambush waiting for them. Evelyn decides to tell Commander Andrew Ford about this, and he decides they should investigate. Because of Evelyn's premonition, they fight off the route successfully. Evelyn tells the entirety of the group about her dreams and is accepted for it. Evelyn marries Andrew Ford in December of 1970, and later in the following year, they welcome a daughter named Nadine into the world. So, in a sense, even here, life is carrying on. New life is entering the world. But by 1973, when Nadine is only about two and a half years old, Evelyn's dreams began to turn violent and extremely vivid. She dreamed of root hunts, felt their desire to brutalize and destroy, felt how wholly they would pursue this goal, and that mankind would never be free from their bloodlust. She kept these violent dreams a secret, even from her husband, for months and months, eventually turning into years. The dreams became so powerful that she even felt the pleasure of the root when they ended life. In an attempt to shield her growing daughter from the truth, Evelyn stopped documenting what was happening and hides her old journals. Over a decade later, in 1988, Evelyn finally can't contain it anymore. She's dreaming of a great root beast, a colossal being coming for them. She knows it's on its way. For a whole year, the dream persists. She watches as it travels towards them from the north. She watches as it kills any human survivors in its warpath. It will soon be at Ward 13. She tells her husband, Commander Andrew Ford, about this, and he is uncertain that such a thing can be real, and he doubts his wife. Unable to escape this sense of doom, Evelyn Ford hypothesizes that if she can see into the minds of the Root, then they must be able to see into hers. That is how they would find Ward 13, because of her. So, what if she fooled them? What if she integrated into the Root and led them astray, kept them from finding Ward 13, told them lies to keep her family and the survivors safe? January 5th, 1989, 
the root behemoth enters the city above Ward 13. Evelyn can sense that it is nearing, so she slips away from her family and Ward 13, finds a thicket of root life, and joins the hive mind of the root, leading them astray, keeping Ward 13 safe and abandoning her life as Evelyn Ford. Instead, she will become known as the root mother. A year later, Andrew Ford took action. His daughter, Nadine, was a grown woman. Ward 13 was safe from the root thanks to Evelyn. Now was the time to search out how to end the root infestation of Earth. Andrew Ford found the labyrinth, a dimension between worlds that allowed travel from one place to another. And for years, Commander Andrew Ford travels around Rom, the frozen world of Rezum, where Clementine lives, the dark place that Dr. Harsgard connected Subject 24092 so long ago, and a world called Yesha. Yesha is the home of a species called the Pan, a goat-like people that, while they are trained as warriors from a young age and are dazzlingly agile, they are nothing against the hive mind hordes of the Root. But thankfully, the Guardian of Yesha is still alive, which safeguards this place from Root invasion. Here on Yesha, Commander Ford finds a strange calling. There is upheaval taking place here, a lower caste of inhabitants. Rebels are rising up against the nobility, and Ford falls in with the rebels, regaling them with lore from America about uprisings against tyrants, civil wars, and the civil rights movement, which the rebelling pan of Yesha just ate up like a delicious slice of pie. He rarely returns to Ward 13 to see his daughter. Though he seems to be off having grand adventures, he is earnestly seeking for answers as to how to defeat the Root. In 1995, he experiences dying in Rom, and then being respawned at a fragment of a world crystal. And he has this weird suspicious feeling that it's something that's happened before, but he just can't, he, he doesn't really know why it happened. Well, directly interacting with the world stone has just so happened to make the good Commander Andrew Ford a little bit immortal. As the years wear on, and 1995 turns into the year 2000, which turns into 2010, Andrew Ford doesn't age. In 2011, his daughter Nadine had a daughter of her own that she names Ellen. Andrew Ford tries to make appearances to have some semblance of a presence in their life, but he is terrible in his efforts. He vanishes for weeks, then months, then years at a time. He makes it to a new place called Corsus in 2025. It's a planet that a dreamer never connected to, a place untouched by the roots with a guardian still living. There, he finds a small and young emerging civilization, or at least he finds the remnants of one. For over a year, he travels through Corsus, suspecting that something sinister took place here. It wasn't the root, so what was it? Where did the inhabitants go? Several more months later, he finally finds someone, a supposed queen of a race called the Iskal, 
who just will not stop talking about how great the Iskall are. For yet several more months, Andrew Ford tries to get information from this queen of the Iskall, but it's like talking to a walking propaganda poster. Three years he spends in that swamp. Though Andrew Ford left without answers, I won't send you away without any. The Iskall assimilated all the clans of Corsus under one banner, the Iskall. Even if they are a different race, they are Iskall and live to serve the betterment of the Iskall through a hive mind. The queen of the Iskall, in fact, desires a root invasion so that she can assimilate them into the Iskall. The queen of the Iskall probably doesn't understand just what she is asking for with this. The queen of the Iskall wants the heart of the guardian that protects Corsus from the root for herself so that she can enslave the entirety of the planet to the Iskall and bring the root here. The queen of the Iskall is absolutely off her rocker insane. But back to Commander Andrew Ford. He does return to Ward 13 for some time after his stint at Corsus, but in November of 2029, he departs for the final time. His daughter Nadine dies from an illness, and his granddaughter Ellen wants nothing to do with him. She hates him for not being present in their lives. She's jealous of the time he spent away, giving no regard to the work that he's trying to accomplish. Because reminder, Earth is still infested with root. It's a torment for the old man. And when he leaves in 2029, Ellen is a grown woman. She's made her choice in regards to her grandfather. So, he leaves. Ward 13 is no longer his home. He leaves behind a key to the Datla, the Dimensional Aperture Translocation Apparatus, or the key to using the World Stone for travel. He seeks out the Root Mother one final time to get transportation back to Yesha, and he leaves Earth behind. Now, in the year 2062, 33 years later, we begin. But we don't begin with Remnant. I fooled you. Again, that's kind of what I do here. We briefly begin with Kronos before the ashes. By now, humans have regressed quite a lot into a more tribalistic lifestyle. Once a year, a young one is sent from a particular small tribe to a tower of metal across the waters to traverse through a great stone in search of a dragon, which they believe controls the root that have invaded Earth. To other worlds they'll go to find the dragon and to kill it. To fail while in a stone is to be cast out to lose that year's attempt. But every year, the young one tries again, until they are no longer young, until they no longer have the strength to do so. But this year, in 2062, the Chosen One succeeds in their misguided journey. In a place called Ward 16, you'll find a mysterious ruined crystal, which takes you to another world. And there we meet a talking tree that tasks you with going to three worlds to kill their guardians. Killing these three guardians will allow you to reach the dragon. Yes, the three guardians protect the dragon. So, kill the guardians, off you go. 
But we know what happens when you kill a guardian's planet. It makes them vulnerable to root attack. It's akin to opening a portal for them, like what happened in ROM. It's practically inviting them in. But off we go. Unaware of the tragedy we're bringing as we go. The guardians of the Krell, Yesha, and the Labyrinth are killed. The root hive mind is no longer held back by the guardians. You see, the roots linked to Earth had become old and worn with the passing decades. After killing this fabled dragon, an old friend of the lore appears, Harsgard. He seems to be quite integrated with the root, so he didn't die back in 1968 with the rest of the wards and mankind. He had an unnaturally long life because of the root. Harsgard sedates our hero and creates a new dreamer within Ward 17. Now, the dragon can be remade and unbound. Thus, a new portal for the root is established on Earth and the invasion can begin anew. Remnant from the Ashes begins approximately one month later. A new hero emerges from that same tribe, sailing across the waters to find what has become of the hero the tribe lost after the dragon was ended. Though we spectacularly fail by rowing straight into a storm while on a small rowboat out in open water and crash land on a shore with this dragon tower off in the distance. What we find here is Ward 13 and an aged Ellen Ford, now Commander Ellen Ford, the granddaughter of Andrew Ford. The Root are knocking at their door. Human life hasn't been seen outside the ward for weeks now. Using Andrew Ford's old Datla key, the World Stone is brought back to life. The World Stone tends to attract the attention of the Root, so for all these years, it's laid inactive. Until now. It's Ward 13's only remaining door to the outside world. Ellen Ford mentions her grandfather, his hunt to end the route, his mysterious disappearance over 30 years ago, and his notes just outside the ward that we can go retrieve. Maybe if we start there, it can guide us towards that atoll that we want to reach so badly. Sure enough, Andrew Ford's notes leads us to the root mother, his wife Evelyn Ford, who lives entwined within the root hive mind. Reaching the atoll where our tribesman was last seen will be no easy task. But before she can give us answers, she must finally disconnect from the root. Otherwise, they will know of her plotting and our plans. And besides, enough time has passed. Perhaps now it's time to depart from this tactic as the root now reside outside Ward 13. Perhaps it is time to return to the ward where her granddaughter commands. Evelyn leads us to the labyrinth, that place of passage between worlds. We need to find Andrew Ford, who has been missing on another world for many years. Andrew Ford still has in his possession the means to reach Ward 17, the atoll across the water. As she did with Andrew Ford over 30 years ago, Evelyn guides us to the Keeper's Tower. The Keeper gives us access to the labyrinth, but the only path open 
is to the desolate planet of Rom, where the undying king Eslan resides. Though there are many characters and many stories to be told within each of these worlds, I will instead keep a focus on the main overarching storyline. The Undying King requests our aid, though it clearly pains his ego to do so. The Guardian of Rom did not die during the Root Invasion so long ago, nor did it die when Eslan nuked the planet to destroy the Root, but the Guardian is weak and will die. Life has begun to return to Rom, and life attracts the Root. If the Guardian perishes, the Root will once again assuredly invade, and there will be no defense against them this time. Rom is still in shambles. Recovery will take lifetimes. The Guardian has kept Aslan alive all these years, since the resources and technologies created by the Kel-Hur mined from the cut-off Black Sun Gate are hardly attainable anymore. This is a beneficial relationship. The Guardian and the Undying King need each other. And Eslan expresses a sort of tenderness when regarding the Guardian that has nourished him for so long. So, here is a choice. Go to Corsus, the young planet home to the Iskal and take the heart of that world's guardian and return it to the Undying King so that the Guardian of Rom may be restored. Or don't and get ready for one hell of a fight against Eslan and his Veer guards. The choice is yours, but keep in mind the intentions of the Iskal Queen of Corsus. She too wants the Guardian's heart, and she wants the route to invade. She thinks she can assimilate them into the Iskal. A side must be taken here. Who will you choose? Reaching the planet Yesha, we find that they are just on the cusp of root invasion. Remember, not but a month ago, someone killed this planet's guardian. The consequences have not truly begun for that yet. Scouting parties have arrived, but not the full force of the root. Here, we meet the leader of the Rebellion forces that are friends to Commander Andrew Ford. Andrew Ford came here after departing Earth over 30 years ago. He is currently in a Queen's custody, imprisoned in her ziggurat, thankfully. The ziggurat isn't a complete pain to find, and sure enough, there's Andrew Ford. He hasn't aged a day in about, oh what, 70 years now? It's not hard to convince the man to aid us in reaching that damned atoll that we've been trying so hard to get to. It's not hard to convince him to go back to Ward 13 to see his granddaughter, to see his now de-rooted wife. He reasons that maybe we can succeed where he repeatedly failed. Within Ward 13, in the depths of it, there's a locked away mirror that acts as a door, similar to the crystals we've had so much experience with. Andrew Ford has the key that will allow us access to that mirror, which will take us to Ward 17. Beyond that, well, not much more can be done for Yesha. The inhabitants of this place will have to deal with the root as best they can. Perhaps we can stem the tide and thin out their numbers somehow, but no direct action can be taken to save this planet from the root. 
Really? All we can do is move on, return to our own world, and fight for ourselves. Through the mirror, in the depths of Ward 13, we travel. And we do find them. Finally, after all this time and effort, we find our lost tribesmen. The new dreamer, who is, in truth, a total nightmare to life and freely takes the form of it. All that can be offered to our lost tribesmen is a good death, and thus the destruction of Ward 17. But that is not the end. This was just the closing of one passage for the route. Another still remains within the old Ward Prime. That tear that Dr. Leto had left when he destroyed the world stone here, well, it still remains. Restoring power to the ward is one hell of a process, but with time and patience, the ward is restored and the portal left by Dr. Leto takes us straight to Rezum, the icy planet where the old dreamer Clementine resides. Though Clementine hasn't aged a day, of course. Even after nine decades, she still looks like a young woman. She recognizes you for what you are and wants nothing to do with you. She retreats to the lair of her guardian, with whom she has a very strong bond. Though this guardian is still strong and able, the root are trying to force themselves into this world. It is ripe for the picking. And Clementine cannot deny that eventually, the guardian will fail. The Root have become so strong that they won't be able to stand against them forever. Clementine is the last remaining dreamer, and she is extremely gifted. She can change the portal left by Dr. Leto, taking us to where she knows the final source of the Root Passage is on Earth. There's nothing Clementine can do to help this world, but she can still help Earth. This is an incredibly difficult thing to ask of the young woman, but she does it. She returns toward Prime and opens up our passage to the source. It takes us straight to gosh dangin' Harsgard. He is completely one with the root now, exactly what he wanted to be, a completely willing host and participant in the madness. It feels real nice to absolutely shooty-shooty-bang-bang this guy. We finally put him down and close what we believe to be the final passage of the route. Though they have our scent, they know where we are. They know how easily manipulated we can be. So, how long do you think it will last? Clawbone is a sly one. I don't think they'll be gone for long.